Well, good morning again. Let's get to work. I'll just go ahead and warn you, we've got a lot to cover this morning. So take your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 is where we're going to be in the Scriptures. We continue in this series that we're in called The Household of Faith, how things are to operate as a part of God's family of faith that we call the church. 1 Timothy chapter 2 is where we're going to be uh, in just a minute. Now, we We just sang about it, and we sang about God receiving glory in His church and His name above all names, and He's all to us. And one of the ways uh, that we are committed to, that I'm personally committed to for your sake and for the sake of our church is to continually hold out the Word of God as absolute truth from God. That's why we preach through books of the Bible and we teach through books of the Bible and we have study through groups going through books of the Bible. We want to teach the Bible as it was written and so we won't have the human tendency to come to a really good passage or one that we all love and we're just all excited about that. Like last week we, we were in chapter 1 and it was all about the grace of God and we could get so excited about that and it might be a temptation then to get to chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, where we're going to be today, and go, well, that one's a little bit more difficult. Maybe we just take a pass on that one and go read a psalm or something, you know, that we could all agree on, because I'm just going to go ahead and own it with you this morning that 1 Timothy chapter 2 has some parts in it that are countercultural. In other words, you're not going to hear some of the things that the Apostle Paul writes in the Bible on CNN. You're probably not even going to hear it on Fox News. Oh, not Fox News. But we want to hold out today so that God will receive ultimate glory in His church. And we don't want to have pastor talk, preacher talk. We want Jesus to be glorified in His church. And we believe that only happens as we align with His Word. And God has designed His church, us, to operate a certain way. And we believe when we operate a certain way, as God has intended it, it's there and in those places that we flourish and that we thrive as families and as individuals and as a church. And that's what I, one of your pastors, one of your elders, that's what your leaders here want for you. If you are a part of this church family and you say, this is home for me, this is where I'm invested in, we want you to be thriving and flourishing in your walk with the Lord and flourishing in relationships with each other and flourishing on this mission God's called us to. And we believe as we walk according to the Word of God, it's the place of flourishing and thriving for you and for us. Now I say all that to say that was exactly the heart and the desire of the Apostle Paul as he writes this letter that we call 1 Timothy. Now when Paul wrote it, he didn't call it 1 Timothy. We've assigned that name to it. He just wrote a letter inspired by God to his young son in the faith, Timothy. Timothy was a pastor and Timothy was a pastor at a church called Ephesus 2,000 years ago. Paul's writing and he has some legitimate concerns and some things on his mind as he writes. He's very concerned about Timothy. Again, Timothy was his son in the faith. Paul loves Timothy and he spends a lot of time in the letter talking to Timothy directly about how Timothy was doing and Timothy's growth as a leader and all that. Now listen, Paul's very concerned about what's going on within the church at Ephesus where Timothy pastored. 
Paul knows the church. He spent three and a half years there helping start the church. And Paul knows, as he writes, there have crept into the church some distortions or some twistings of the way God desired it and intended it to be. And we know there is an enemy who's very much at work that wants to take things the way God intends, the way God has designed, and twist them and distort them ever so slightly. And where things are twisted and distorted, humans don't flourish and God is not as glorified as He could be. That's what was going on in the church at Ephesus. So Paul writes, and Paul's going to identify, and here's the outline we're going to use. I'll just go ahead and give it to you. There were three distortions that were going on in the church at Ephesus. There was a distorted view of God in regard to His plan for saving people. There was an epidemic in the church at Ephesus. The second distortion was this. There was an epidemic of passive men. Men had just become passive and not involved in leading. And then there was an epidemic in the church also of women who had stepped into roles never intended for them and that had become extremely distracting in the church there at Ephesus. So we've got a distorted view of God, we've got passive men, and we've got distracting women. We've got something for everybody in 1 Timothy chapter 2, all right? Enough to make everybody mad this morning. The point Paul is writing is there's some things that have crept in that are not as God intends it. And Paul's writing so this church will thrive and flourish. And that's what he wants. So let's read together. I'm going to try to cover most of the chapter this morning if I can. I know it's a daunting task. So you hang with me. Let's start to read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First distortion is this. They had a distorted view of God. Let's find out what we mean by that. Verse 1, Paul says, First of all then, I urge. Paul has great passion. He urged, he says, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now those are all words for prayer. He's saying, I'm urging you, church, that you are people of prayer for others, specifically those that do not know Christ. Where do we get the idea of praying evangelistically as a church? Where do we get the idea of praying for our three names on a card? Right here in 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, verse 2, I want you to pray for kings, leaders, presidents, rulers, emperors. And oh, by the way, when Paul writes this, there was an emperor leading in Rome who was killing Christians. You say, well, I don't like the views of my president. Okay, but I don't think he's going around killing Christians. Paul says, pray for your leaders. Pray for him. He says, pray for kings, pray for all, there's that word again, all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Verse 3, this is good. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Verse 4, key verse here. Who, God, desires all, there's that word again, all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5, there's one God, there's one mediator between God and men. By the way, there's one and only one way for men and women to be made right with God through Jesus Christ. That's the only way. Paul's very clear. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for, there's that word again, all which is the testimony given at the proper time. Paul says, verse 7, For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. There in verse 7. Now, what's the point? Here's the distortion that had come into the church at Ephesus. 
The distortion is influenced by some Jewish false teachers, and the distortion is influenced by some pagan teachers who had been influenced by the Greek pantheon of gods were teaching basically something like this, that God's plan and program for salvation was only meant for a select small group of people. And that God was not a God desiring the nations or all people to be transformed and be saved. The Jewish false teachers were saying God is really only interested in drawing to himself those of the Jewish nation. And if you want to be a part of the program of God, you have to become a proselyte Jew and come up under this system and go through all the law, all the legal work. And God is not really interested in the rest of humanity. They had this distorted view of the plan and the program of God's saving purpose. Therefore, now watch this. Here's why Paul says this. Therefore, when they looked out over this Gentile city of Ephesus, they looked at most of the people in their city and thought to themselves, you must be outside of the plan and program of God for salvation. Therefore, I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to witness because it just doesn't matter. And they had lost their evangelistic zeal as a church. They were not praying for lost people. They were not caring for people that didn't know Christ because of this distorted view in their minds that had come from these false teachers. It would be no different than you and me at looking at someone in your sphere of influence and thinking they are, they are outside of the realm of God. There's no hope for them. Either because of their background, either because they're too wicked, either because of their nationality, saying that person, there's no chance that God's going to save them. Or you don't look at them with the passion that God has in verse 5 or verse 4 where he says, God is desiring that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Therefore, you're not praying for them. Therefore, you're not witnessing to them. Therefore, your heart does not break for them. That's what was going on in the church at Ephesus. And Paul writes to correct it. He says, pray. Pray because God is right now desiring and drawing men and women to himself. And I'm going to give you two practical truths, two life application truths. I'm going to give you a few of these with each one. Number one is this. The finished work of Jesus is sufficient to save all who believe. We are not believing that when we look at someone in our sphere of influence or someone in our lives and our first inclination is, no way, man. No way is that person going to come to Christ. No way am I even going to bother to pray for that person. No way am I even going to bother to figure out a way to share the gospel with that person. Somehow in our minds we give ourselves a pass and we're thinking exactly what they were thinking at Ephesus. No way God's at work in that person's life. Secondly, here's what else happened. The life application number two. God uses our prayers and our witnesses, our witness to bring others to himself. Paul is saying that here. Church. He's saying that the church is Ephesus. I believe, I'm speaking of Pastor Mikey, I believe God saves. I believe God is responsible for salvation. I believe it's a work of God from beginning to end. God is sovereign in it. I also believe that God chooses to use means to bring about people's salvation, the means of saints praying, and the means of saints sharing the message of the gospel. The church at Ephesus had lost sight of that. The church at Ephesus, because of a distortion, had lost their evangelistic zeal. Therefore, God was not being honored like he could. Therefore, the church was not flourishing like they could. Paul is saying the same thing to them. We say to you, we are the evangelistic strategy of the church. We're it. How's our zeal? 
How's our passion? I'll finish this first section with a quick quote from a man named Charles Spurgeon. He was a passionate, fiery preacher from several hundred years ago. And and he believed God saved. He believed in the sovereignty of God and salvation. But he believed it was our responsibility to pray and witness and share the gospel. Listen to what Spurgeon said. I'm going to read this. He says, one thing more. The soul winner must be a master of the art of prayer. You cannot bring souls to God if you go not to God yourself. You must get your battle axe, I love that, get your battle axe, and your weapons of war from the armory of sacred communion with Christ. Do you love that? Then he goes on and he says, There are some of you who are earnest for the winning of souls, and you're truly wise, but I fear there are others whose hands are slack, who are satisfied to let me, Spurgeon says, let me preach, but do not themselves proclaim the message. Well, that's preacher's job. Preacher will take care of that. No, no. We, to take the seats and occupy these pews and hope that all goes well and that is all that they do. Spurgeon says, oh, dear people, don't lose your zeal for souls around you because of some wrong view of God who is passionate to draw men and women to himself. God, give us that passion. So Paul was concerned that Ephesus had lost that. God, let us keep that passion. Now, distortion number two. There was a second thing that had become distorted in the church at Ephesus that was really hindering them, and you're going to see it in verse 8. I've already mentioned it. There was a a problem in the church at Ephesus, and Paul writes and addresses it, that somehow, someway, the men of the church had begun to be passive. The men of the church had somehow moved to the sidelines of leadership and involvement in the church. Verse 8 Paul says this in response to the situation that's there. He says, I desire. The word desire is a very strong apostolic word with authority. He says, I I want, I'm pleading, it is the will of God, so to speak. I'm desiring that in every place, specifically as the church gathered, if you will, the men, the men should pray. Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now stop right there. So Paul has just addressed an issue that was not happening in the church. The evangelistic zeal had been lost. The church was not praying as as God was desiring them to pray. And the first group he goes to is he says, Man, somehow, someway, this particular area has gotten to where it is in the church because you are not taking the leadership role that God has entrusted to you. He is saying the passivity of the men has led in many ways to where the church is. Guys, I got to tell you something. This is an absolute burden and passion for me personally that my tendency to be passive or our tendency as men to kind of back off or our tendency as men to sit and watch as things are done in the church and in our home, it is becoming epidemic. It's epidemic in the churches. It's epidemic in our nation. And Paul is saying, guys, the church is intended to flourish. The homes flourish. Not when men dominate. It's not talking about an a potentate here or some domineering fence. Nobody's talking. But when the men 
assume and take on leadership roles. And it's men that are taking the initiative. It's men that are setting the trajectory. It's men that are establishing the priority. And this glorious picture of men being men. church doesn't thrive when that's not the case families don't thrive when that's the case and I know listen this is one of those passages when I read it I know in the back of my mind I'm thinking so many homes there's so many homes with children there's so many homes with with wives and they yearn for that and either the man is not there at all or the man is passive I grieve with you and let me just say this church when there are children and there are wives and men are either absent or men are passive it is the role of the church to step in in those situations and to provide that. So Paul says, listen, the, the men are passive and it's, and it's killing the church. Now look, he connects these and all these flow together here. What we're going to talk about in a minute is caused in many ways by this. But he says, men, I want you in every place to pray. And he says, as you pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. What does that mean? Well, the word holy here literally means purity or unpolluted or holy lives. It's the idea of pure. It's not the idea of perfect, but it is the idea of blameless. It's not the idea of sinless, but it is the idea of pursuing purity. The idea of hands here is a word picture and it is intended to represent the activities of life. So Paul's saying, men, as you lead, and as you lead in the church, and as you lead in the home, as God has intended you to to do, it's to be done with holy hands. In other words, the activity of your life is a pursuit of holiness and purity in your life. Pause for a minute. told you this was going to be a tough message, so let me say something from the bottom of my heart as much as I can to men. Men, let's not be deceived to believe that somehow what I do in my own life or in the privacy of my own home or when no one else is looking or when everyone else has gone to bed, do not be deceived to think that that doesn't affect your family, your home, your church, your job, and every aspect of your life. Everything. I'm going to chase a tangent because it is an area of passion for me and I long for this for men. Let me even get a little bit more specific here. When Paul is talking about the area of holy hands, one of the reasons I believe that the men were passive is because instead of pursuing the things of God, they were pursuing other things that were distracting and were unholy in their lives. Let me give you one of the reasons I'm convinced that men take on passive roles in churches and men take on passive roles in homes and even in our nation today. One of the reasons there is an epidemic of passive of men in the church and home today is the staggering influence of pornography in the lives of men. So Pastor Mike, you're getting way, way too personal with me. Listen, we are a family. What happens to you affects me. What affects me affects you. We are a body. And I need you to know something. Regardless of what is said in culture, there is an epidemic that is killing our men it is killing our young men I say this as a dad of an 18 and a 15 year old the epidemic of pornography is killing our men 
So I don't want you to think that the idea of holy hands, as God calls us to here, is merely something that we can feign on Sunday morning when we bring any of that junk in with us. Guys, I'm pleading with you, be honest with God. There may be a moment of confession with God where you say, Lord, I am wrestling with this, I am struggling with that, and then you may need to go to a brother in the Lord and say, bro, I can't battle this on my own. And by the way, you were never intended to battle it on your own. And say, man, I need help. I need help. This, these, these lives, you, you can't, I'll just chase it for a minute more. You, you can't fool yourself in thinking that pornography does not capture your energy and your zeal. You can't fool yourself and think that pornography does not rob you of your time and your focus. And it leaves you unable to connect relationally with real people because you've been looking at virtual images all week and it hinders your ability to truly connect with people who are real. No matter what you hear out there. God, give us pure hearts. God, give us clean hands. God, give us victory over this blight in the lives of men called pornography. It affects all of us. So the distortion in the church, the men had become passive. Let me, let me give you life application number three, and we'll move on for the sake of time, is this. Men reject passivity and lead out of pure I'm just telling you as a part of this church, I'm telling you as working with families and knowing situations, there are families and there are churches that are craving for men to do that very thing. Lead well from a pure life. Thirdly, <laughs> everybody okay? <gasps> Take a breath. All the women went, yeah, get on the men. All right, now it's your turn, ladies. Ready? And oh, by the way, I don't know why, but Paul devotes one verse to the men and like eight to the women. You ready? All right. So distortion number three. And again, all of these things that were going on in the church are not independent of one another, all connected with one another. A distorted view of God, passivity of men, then leads to this, distracting women. So what in the world does that mean? Well, let me give you a little bit of the context that was going on in the city of Ephesus so you understand why Paul says some of the things he says here. You need to understand in the city of Ephesus, there was a, there was a temple, a pagan temple right in the middle of the city called the Temple of Diana. It was a temple to the false god Diana, part of the Greek pantheon and all that. And every evening in Ephesus, thousands of temple prostitutes would fill the streets of Ephesus dressed in scantily attire in an attempt to lure the men of the city to quote-unquote, worship at the temple. It was a major problem. There was also a problem in the city of Ephesus that there was a major class system. The rich were the minority, but they greatly oppressed the poor who were the majority. So there was this major issue over wealth. Also, the passivity of men that we mentioned earlier was a major issue. So with all of those things kind of contributing together, Paul writes in verse 9 and says this, Likewise also that the women should adorn, the word adorn means put yourself together, should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now remember how hard it was for a man to come out of this pagan system. First generation Christians here, 
Maybe some of these guys have been Christians five, ten years max. They come out of this pagan system, they go to the house of worship, and they're seeing some of the same things from the women there that they saw in the pagan temple. And they, it's killing them. It's killing them. Paul says, verse 10, but with, but, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, that is, with good works. We'll talk about that in a minute. Let a woman learn. It's a very positive statement. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And I'll stop right there. We'll pick up the rest of these verses in just a minute. Now, let me give you some points of application here. Evidently, what was going on at the church at Ephesus, because of the passivity of the men, because of the influence of pagan background, the women were flaunting their physical beauty. They were flaunting their wealth, and they were taking on roles within the church that were never intended for them. And the church was struggling. The believers were struggling. Their witness was struggling. The unity of the body was struggling. And Paul says, hold on, time out. I want the church to flourish. Life application number four. Ladies, resist the temptation to dress in a manner that draws attention to you. Paul's very clear here. He says again in verse 9, he says, Women, adorn yourselves in respectable apparel. Now, that doesn't mean ugly, ratty clothes so nobody look at it. That's not the point. Paul says respectable apparel. Look nice. Look, look good. That's not the point. The point is this. Are you dressing in a way that is intended so that the attention, particularly of the men, will be drawn away from Christ and the body and the church and will be drawn to you? He says here that's true physically. The word modesty implies be very cautious to attempt to draw the eyes of men to parts of your physical body. Then he talks about the material aspect. He says be careful with gold and pearls and costly attire. Again, nothing wrong with gold rings, nothing wrong with gold earrings. That's not the point. The point is are you, are you adorning these things in such a way to draw attention to your wealth or to create this illusion of your superiority over everyone else in the church. It was causing major disunity in the church. Now again, I've got several points here, and I could talk about all these. I'm going to try to skim them as best I can. Let me just make an appeal this way. I want to speak to you as a man. I want to speak to you, as I said earlier, the father of two young boys. Ladies, you need to understand, I'm going to say this as clear as I can say it, help a brother out. I live in 2016. We live in the technological age. I do not personally need any more stumbling blocks. And neither do our young men. It had become a major issue at the church at Ephesus. And it easily becomes an issue in churches that are trying to fight for the unity. When this when this distortion in our minds, and I'm speaking of ladies' minds. I don't have a lady's mind, so I'm doing my best here. I cleared all this with my wife, by the way. She helped me write all this. Anyway, so if you have a problem, you can talk to Jennifer. Uh, <laughs> this distortion comes in that somehow, some way, and I'll say this as clearly as I can say it either, God has gifted women in such a way 
that they can have the power to attract the eyes of men in ways, guys, we can't even understand how that works. I mean, I can walk in a room, nobody gives a rip what I wear, right? Who cares what you're wearing, Pastor Mike? But there's some way God has ordained that ladies have that power. What's this? That can be used to the glory of God or can be used as a stumbling block. That's what Paul's alluding to. So the question is then, how does a... How does a woman, how does a female discern between the fine line of proper dress and dressing to be the center of attention? I have no idea. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I'll try to help as best I can. How do you discern between that line? Life application number five. Ready? Ladies, here's the issue. Let your attitude, it's an attitude issue. What's the motive? What's the attitude? Let your attitude be one of modesty and self-control and your adornment, godliness. If you're pursuing godliness and the fruit of that, which, by the way, depending on what type of man you want to attract, whatever kind of bait you hold out there is the kind of man you're going to attract. Right? I'm not a fisherman, but I can probably figure that out. Paul says, ladies, adorn yourself with godliness. That's the kind of man you're going to attract. And let me just say something to you. I remember my days in college a long, long time ago, and all the girls that were out there, there was a particular girl that caught my eye, and what caught my eye was her godliness and her respect for her parents and her love for Jesus. Her name was Jennifer, and I thank God for her. She adorned that godliness. Ladies, if you're wanting to attract a godly man, let your purpose be godliness. Wear godliness. Now, again, that doesn't mean you wear a tater sack either. You can dress fine, but your goal is. (laughs) Now, watch this. The attitude, verse 9. Two words here are key. The word modesty and the word self-control. The word modesty comes from the idea of humility, selfless. It's also connected to the word shame. The word modesty is the idea, ladies, that this attitude would be ashamed if you realized you were the source of distraction or the source of stumbling to a brother in Christ. In other words, there would be shame in your heart to realize, I have distracted one of my brothers from Christ. So the attitude, therefore, is humility. I want to be used to point to Christ, not to me. Self-control, the word is discretion. The idea is a commitment and the ability to control one's passions, especially sexually. In other words, here is a woman that is controlled by the Spirit of God who adorns herself in godliness. And the heart of this woman is so ordered by the Spirit of God, she's in control of her own passions. And watch this. And she's careful not to arouse the passions of others. Paul says, that is a picture of godliness. Man, my time is short. I've got to read 1 Peter to you. 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. Oh, guys, this is what you want. Ladies, this is what you're longing for. Verse 3, Peter says this. 1 Peter, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold or jewelry. Again, nothing wrong with that. Priority, though, is this. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle, selfless, and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. 
And I'll just say to men of God and godly men, that's a precious thing too. And you say, girls, wait, if I don't draw attention to myself, how will they ever notice me? Listen, guys that are looking for that kind of girl, they will see you. God will supernaturally open their eyes if he has to. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. All right. Life application number six. Let me give you just a few more. We'll be finished. So Paul goes on here and he talks about this particular area of modesty and being a distraction. And then Paul talks about particular roles in the church. Evidently, the ladies had taken on roles that they were never intended to take on in the church. Here's life application number six. Ladies, God sees men, and that word should be men, and women of equal value. Verse 11, this is encouraging. Paul says here, let a woman learn. Now, we immediately jump over to the quietly and with all submissiveness and have maybe trouble with what that means. Paul is making a revolutionary statement here in this culture. He's saying, within the church, let a woman learn. In other words, women are to learn. They are of equal value right alongside the men. And you say, well, duh. But in that culture, that was not the idea. In this Greek culture that they were living in, women were seen as very low. The respectable Greek woman led a confined life. She lived in her own quarters, which no one but her husband was allowed to come. She did not even appear at meals. She was not seen on the streets alone. She never went to any public assembly. Women were put on the fringe in the Greek culture. The Jewish culture was not a lot different. The Jewish culture that was influencing this church, it was said that a Jewish morning prayer of a Jewish man would be this, God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Meaning. Paul is saying something absolutely revolutionary here. Women are on absolute equal standing with men. Let a woman learn. Let her be part of the activity of the church. Let her be growing in her relationship with Christ. He says with, uh, quietly and with all submissiveness. That's the attitude of a learner, not of a leader. In other words, Paul was not saying they're to take on leadership roles and authority in the church. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But women have absolute equal standing with men. you got to know, that was revolutionary and brought to the world through Christianity, through Christ, and through the gospel, and through the New Testament church. The New Testament is very clear that women are absolutely on equal par with men. Jesus first revealed his Messiahship to a woman. Jesus healed women. Jesus taught women. Women ministered to Jesus and the disciples. Following his resurrection, Jesus appeared first to a woman, Mark 16, 9. Women and men were involved in the prayer services and the ministry of the early church and on and on and on and on. Man, Christianity brought this concept to the world. So, Ladies, God sees men and women of equal value. Now, verse or number seven flows out of that. Life application number seven. We're almost finished. But, ladies, embrace, and I mean embrace in a very positive sense for the flourishing of your life, your family, and your church. Embrace the specific roles assigned to men and women by God. What do you mean by that? Verse 12. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. In other words, in the church at Ephesus, what had happened is things had gotten turned upside down. The men were passive. 
The people had gotten a distorted view of God, and the women had begun to assume leadership roles and take roles of authority in the church where they were practicing and in roles of authority over the men of the church. And Paul says, hang on. Now listen. It's not because men are more important. It's not because men have more to give. It's not because women are inferior. It's because God, from the beginning of the world, has instituted order and roles and responsibilities. And the world is to flourish that way. The home is to flourish that way. And the church is to flourish that way. He says, verse 13, for... In other words, I'm basing all this I'm saying on this reality. Adam was formed first and then Eve. You can go back and read it in Genesis 1-2. There was a purpose in that. There was an order, not of value, but of role within the home and the local church. We see these specific roles played out into particular contexts, the home and the church. In the home, for example. We talked about this several weeks ago in the book of Colossians, so I'm not going to take time to talk about this at great length. The man is called, gifted, to be the head of the home and the head of the wife, Ephesians 5.23. He is to lovingly lead. He is to set direction, establish priorities, to provide protection, to lead and take the initiative and create Headship is to create this canopy of flourishing, this canopy of provision, this canopy of protection where the family and the wife come up under and flourish. It's not a doormat. It's not a lesser role. It is the way God has intended it for the flourishing of the home and the family. I read this quote by recently a, a young lady. Her name is Candace Cameron. She's evidently a pretty famous movie star. She's on The View. and You've probably heard of her. Anyway, she referred to herself in one of her most recent books as a submissive wife. Well, you can imagine what happened. The media went nuts and said, well, you're being oppressed, you're being dominated, you're being a doormat. And here's what she said. She said, no, no, you don't understand. This is the biblical pattern. And she said, I love that my man, my husband leads our family because he loves us so much. He is called to love me to the point of laying down his life. I trust my husband. I honor my husband. And I believe it's God's pattern for me to submit under his leadership. It's a picture. It's not a doormat. It's not lesser. The same context is true within the church in the sense that, as Paul says, in the church, those in the positions of authority and leadership of the church, oversight, leading, protecting, providing, setting direction, establishing priorities, have been entrusted to male leadership within the church. Not an issue of value, an issue of roles. We'll talk a whole lot more about this next week when we're in, a fee, uh, when we're in chapter 3. When Paul talks about the roles of elders, the men, the leaders of the church, and what that looks like, we'll talk about that next week. But for us here, what does that mean? It means this, that we as a church, we practice and we exercise that role of elder, that role of pastor is exclusively a male role. The role of authority, oversight, direction, those things that I've just talked about. Corporately for us in settings like this, based on what Paul says here in the Bible, the role of teaching to a congregation like this is exclusively a male role. Like in the home, the leadership and oversight for the local church is entrusted to qualified and called men. And Paul says, embrace that ladies and really the rest of the church come up under that leadership to find a place of flourishing and thriving as God has intended it to be. 
Here at our church, ladies are on ministry teams. Ladies serve on staff roles. Ladies take an active part in worship services. Ladies teach in the context of other women. Ladies grow. Ladies thrive. It's not this oppressive system at all. It is the way God has intended it to be of an order. And within that order, there is flourishing and there is thriving. And that's what Paul is writing about. Now, let me read a couple last verses and we'll wrap up and we'll be finished. Verse into 13, Paul says, For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Verse 14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What does that mean? It means basically from the very beginning, Satan's attempt was to turn this order of authority upside down. The Satan, Satan in the Garden of Eden did not go to Adam, the leader. He went to Eve and tried to put her in a role of authority. And you know the rest of this story. It wasn't because Eve was mentally incompetent in the garden. She was more easily tempted. That's not the point. Satan tried to disrupt the order as God has intended it. When he's able to do that, flourishing suffers. Churches suffer. The homes suffer. Final life application number eight, and we're finished. Ladies, embrace your unique contribution to the kingdom of God. Verse 15, this is one of those verses, if you don't take time to explain it, you go, what in the world is this mean? Verse 15, yet she or women will be saved, delivered through childbearing. What? So in other words, to be saved, i got to have a baby? Is that what that means? Well, all our guys are in trouble, that's for sure. That's not what that means. He doesn't say childbirthing, he says childbearing. Big difference. If they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. In other words, here's what Paul's saying, I believe, as best I can discern it. While women may have led the human race into sin and may have in culture the potential of bearing that reproach, he says, no, God has moved in with grace. And he's saying this, women have the privilege of leading many out of sin to godliness through the unique role and bond you have in the home and with the family. In other words, listen, Jennifer and I share in the discipleship of our children. We share in those roles in our home. I recognize my role as headship. She recognizes her role as coming up into submission under that role. But listen, I also understand that there is a bond. There is a unique potential and capacity mama has in the home that I simply don't understand as the dad. And it is to be an idea of I have the opportunity in the kingdom of God to make investments that men simply can't fully understand. The point is this, to celebrate the gift of being a woman. You're not going to hear that in the world. You're going to hear something twisted and distorted in the world. If you read 1 Timothy chapter 2 in its context, here's what you walk away with. God has designed an order. God wants his church to flourish. God has a role for men. God has a role for women. I can celebrate who I am as a woman. In the kingdom of God, I have a unique place. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And somehow, some way, the enemy in our culture is able to say, no, the church has got it all wrong. There's just a bunch of chauvinists down there. And sex, that's not the idea at all. God has a way for the family and the church and then all of society to flourish when we walk according to His Word. Amen. Why don't you just bow your heads for a second. Our team's going to come up. and We're going to close in a word of prayer in just a moment. But I want to 
Tough passage, challenging passage, I know that. But I want to give you the opportunity right there in your seat with kind of in a moment of reverence, a moment with your head bowed, just no distractions, you and the Lord right there for a moment. I'm just going to ask David to play softly. I want you to wrestle with some things in your own heart here. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything like that. You before the Lord right now. Maybe you need to wrestle with some questions like this. First, do I really believe God is in the business of saving people? We talked about that earlier. Do I have that passion? Does my prayer life reflect that? Or have I somehow lost the sense of who God is and the mission God is on? Secondly, men, there are some areas in your home, some areas maybe with your children, so maybe some areas in this church where you have taken a passive role. You're just spectating. Are there some things in your life where you'd have to say, man, that holy hands thing, no way. I, I'm struggling. Man, I want to pray for you. Man, we want to help you. Be honest with God about it. Start there. God, here's where I am. Start there. Ladies, is there a way that possibly you're a your distraction. You've unnecessarily caused the eyes of men to stumble or wonder or unnecessarily trying to draw the attention to yourself. Or maybe taking on a role that was never intended for you. Or maybe you've maybe you see the leadership of your husband or those in the church as a hindrance rather than a gift. Pray for that husband. Honor that husband. Pray for the leadership here and celebrate God's good design. I'm going to give you a second to do business right there with God in your seat as God leads you. I'm going to pray for you. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, I just want to say thank you for the kind of church here that we can wrestle with hard things like this like this passage, Lord. Lord, thank you for creating a kind of church here that loves your word and loves you and wants you to be glorified here. Pray for the men. God, help us to not be passive and afraid and in retreat and fearful. And God, help us to clear our lives of the junk that is robbing us of energy and strength and vitality. God, help us to pursue godliness and passion and power strength and energy that you give. God, I thank you for the ladies of this church, Lord. God, I pray for that spirit of modesty and self-control and gentle, quiet spirit that First Peter talked about, Lord, that is pleasing to you and is a beautiful, beautiful thing. God, we love you. And God, I thank you that you love this church so much. In Jesus' name we pray together.